welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm normally your host and I kind of am your host at this moment, but there's also another host here. Uh, She'll introduce herself. My name's Liz and I'm your other host. So Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and a podcast where people stand up and do tragedy. We like to make people cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry and we want to be a safe space to talk about unsafe things. And that means on today's episode there will be some unsafe things. We've got some talk about suicide for sure coming up. Uh, We've got some other dark things as well. So just be prepared for sadness, but also for laughter as well. Right, so I normally host the podcast. I created the show and I'm the, the general host of the show. One of the things that I've been doing in 2015 is been having guest hosts Uh, hosting sections of the show and then in Edinburgh whole shows we've got a special guest host coming up in our autumn show Tragic Autumn (laughs) which we've just established is on the 16th of October 16th of October at the Hackney Attic that is right and Liz (laughs) is going to be hosting the second act of that night um, but you're more than just a guest host, Liz. What, what are you in terms of stand-up tragedy? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, I don't... It's been a number of things over the years, but, I mean, most fundamentally, it's stage managing and performer wrangling, really. Um, but sometimes it's been, yeah, doing more producing stuff like that. It's sort of vacillated as my uh, my regular day job has vacillated, I yeah, think. Yeah, depends how busy you are. It's like, but at the same time... <laughs> You've definitely been essential for all of our Edinburgh journeys and uh, pretty much a lot of our very early London journeys. You held me together, at least, (laughs) let alone the show. So, yes, Liz has been with Sun at Tragedy for since the beginning since the beginning and you're kind of going away from stand-up tragedy although I keep saying you know for the moment or at this time or whatever this is how it is yeah I mean that's how all my life feels right now every everything has been sort of scaling back various responsibilities saying well for now or or maybe this will be it who knows but because I'm coming to the end of my PhD and I have to um submit by the fall so it's sort of everything in my life is getting rolled back to the most basics which is Slightly terrifying, but important. Right, and your PhD is in social policy, which Mm -hmm. is what you're kind of handling at Tragic Autumn. You're going to be looking at the tragedy of what? Of the welfare state. So the the conceit that we decided was that it'd be tragic back to school. Yeah. And uh, in this case, I've gotten some of my colleagues, some of my lovely colleagues, uh, are going to be performing for the first time, um, talking about how they see the tragedy of the welfare state depending on their different disciplines and talking to them about what they're going to do. It's really interesting because they're giving their opinions and thoughts in a way that they wouldn't be doing, I think, normally. And I think it'll be really really nice for the audience and I think it'll be a really unique experience because none of them have ever performed like that before. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting to me in two ways because one of the things that Stand Out Tragedy wants to do is to get people doing things they wouldn't normally do, having a space where they can talk about the saddest stuff that they can't normally talk about. And I guess academics, uh, like the rest of us, can't talk about sadness very much or it's not socially acceptable. And the other reason it's exciting to me is that they are, yeah, not 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 seasoned professionals uh, as performers. They're seasoned professionals as academics. Um, and that's one of the things we like to do at Stand Up Tragedy is have people who are starting out, people who are in the middle and people who are really, really like super like ex- established acts as well. And we've got established acts coming up at Tragic Autumn. If you're like, oh, I don't want to go and see a load of academics, then you're wrong. <laughs> you should want to do that. But uh, there will also be some, you know, pretty shit hot comedians and stuff like that. 
happening. It's quite a comedy heavy lineup. It's kind of comedy comedians and academics. It's kind of mm. a nice mix. It's kind of quite like science show off that Steve Cross runs is a good uh yeah, reference point for well, what we're doing. And actually much credit to Steve Cross cuz that's one of the things that sort of I was playing with was the idea that scientists get to do this a lot, but people in the social sciences don't end up doing it a lot. And I think that's quite a shame because, you know, we deal with people. We're studying people and people are fascinating and weird and funny and tragic. And so it's, I think, good to talk about that kind of thing as well outside of our uh, our small ivory towers. Absolutely. And I, I would say I'm not putting some um, some music over this conversation. We're, we're recording in Brixton. I think that's like somebody driving by with bass yeah so i guess that will go after a while as well as sort of having a little intro about what's going on um in tragic autumn which is coming up we're also going to be like basically going through your greatest hits my greatest hits yeah the stuff that you've enjoyed the most from your years with us and this is kind of like a goodbye uh present from you to us and a goodbye present from us to you yeah um but i hope it won't necessarily always be goodbye (laughs) i think you kind of you never leave, you just sort of like stop for a bit. So we're going to be recording three lots of, of your best ofs and we're gonna, I'm going to edit this all into three separate episodes. Not quite sure how I'll do that with our great introduction, which we've done, <laughs> which will be great, at least for episode one. But yes, so let's go through uh, this the, the first of your lineups, which you've you've gathered together in a big spreadsheet, you've like yeah. gone back through all yeah. of our podcasts, right? Yeah, I had to listen. To, well, I didn't have to. I did. Yeah, you chose to. to. I, didn't I chose to do you it. To. No, 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 no. I chose to do it, and I, it was fascinating to go back through for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it was the reason that there's three podcasts. This was originally supposed to be one, was that it was like impossible to choose. It's choosing between your children. It's choosing between many talented performers, many of whom are my friends, many really beautiful, really personal performances. Some, the thing that I found though was that uh, a lot of the comedy ones didn't translate as well. So it, it may seem a bit spoken word heavy, but that's yeah. why they're three, and that's why there's a big old spreadsheet. But I started listening from the beginning, and that was quite interesting. Yeah, you've basically gone back and time traveled, mm. and I mean that may be cringe when you said you'd be yeah. listening from the beginning because I remember how bad those original podcasts are compared to where we're at now yeah, in terms of sound quality yeah. well sound quality wise but it's also quite interesting how quality a lot of the performances are and uh, how many of them are performers that we still use today right and then it's also interesting to hear you emceeing the stand-up tragedy for the first time and sort of going through that process of will anybody like this right but, you know we're at the end of our fourth season going into the fifth season maybe next year and it's funny to think about it from the the first one yeah, I mean, yeah, right. And yeah, you, you, from my from a me point of view, you'll have been able to see my development as a host for for the last few years. And I think I've done, I have developed. I don't know if I've I've got still got a way to go. Um, but that's that's what that's what stand up tragedy is all about. Like tr- keeping on trying to achieve uh, the impossible. Keep it on, keep it on. Right. With our first Liz special, um, we've got. The best of each season. You've gone and you've picked the best of the London seasons mm. and the best of the Edinburgh seasons. Yeah, I kind of thought this was a good approach to do just because they've been so variable and I didn't want to not give credit to some of the earlier work we've done. And actually, um, my first pick uh, from London season number one when we were at the Leicester Square Theatre is actually from the first show we ever did. Yeah. And I've thought that was a bit interesting that like listening back to that first season it's still the one one of the ones that connected with me the most and it's called uh the big o and it's fiction done by the liars league and it's just a very 
it had a big emotional impact on me. I think there's a a great beauty in it, and it's this mother. Well, I won't go into too much of it because you'll be listening spoilers. to it. spoilers. But um, I think it's really wonderful, and and I connect a little bit to the main character and what she's saying, even though uh, it, it's it's sort of a fantasy, I think. But on the other hand, you can see how it could very easily not be a fantasy, and it is quite tragic. So that was my best of from London season number one. And as mentioned, expect poor sound quality at this point in our journey, but it will get better. Yeah, here we go. Now, Liars Lee presents The Great Big O by Jacqueline Downs, performed by Libby Edwards. This and more can be found at liarsleague.com. Writers write, actors act, and everyone wins. Thank you. The Great Big O by Jacqueline Downs. When Karen Ward's son left for school at 9.37 this morning, she had already decided that by tea time, he would be dead. In the hours in between, she bought fish fingers, the expensive brand, and potatoes to make chips from scratch, because he liked hers better than the frozen, crinkly ones you could buy at the supermarket. Then she climbed four flights of stairs to get to their flat, and she sat on the balcony amongst the pigeon shit, drinking milky tea and wishing she'd nailed up the wire mesh like she'd always threatened to. Now, as it gets close to five, and the fish fingers are tanning under the grill, she watches her boy as he lies in front of the TV, as he does every day when he comes home from school, alone, his elbows propping him up, trying to keep his head upright, his mouth in a great big O. Karen doesn't know exactly what it is he's watching, But she can't help herself thinking, I hope it's not a serial, because he's never going to find out how it ends. Philip doesn't notice his mum staring at him, but she is, and her eyes flutter over the bruise on his arm, returning to it like a bad habit. She doesn't remember if it was her who did it, as Philip tried yet again to run around the flying furniture, or if it had been the work of his dad. So many bruises on Philip and on Karen, that she just loses track of how they came to be. As Philip watches the story, his eyes transfixed on the screen, like the light is pulling his eyes towards it, sucking them into it, his mouth in that entranced O. Karen thinks about how his own story began, when she pushed him out of her. His mouth had been in an O then, far too early and they'd had to take him away from her, straight away from her, before she'd even had a chance to see him. They'd stuck a tube down his tiny throat, and they'd sucked her insides out of him, all blood-red and viscous, making him even smaller. By the time she got him back, all cleaned up and empty inside, it was like he didn't know who she was, didn't know that he'd come from her. Karen thinks that his story might have never begun. She didn't even know if she could have him. The doctors didn't seem sure, didn't know exactly what her pills might do to a baby. But she wanted one so much, wanted to give her husband something to love her for, that it didn't matter. And when Philip came out a perfect thing as she had ever had in her life, she couldn't even cry. Karen thinks that Philip looks so serious now watching the telly. She wants him to laugh, but he doesn't. 
His mouth stays in that O shape. The same kind of O shape it had when she left him at the nursery for the first time. Like he couldn't quite believe she'd done it, but he was relieved nonetheless. Even then, it was like he knew that to be away from her would be good and bad. The life and the death of him. He had watched her back away with that O on his face and then busied himself with the paint box. She watched him for a while then too, and he didn't know it. <coughs> he was lost to those colours, lost to the world they showed him. He couldn't wait to get to proper school. It was as though he had been opened up and needed to be filled in. As though his outline had been drawn and he was waiting for the colour to be applied. It seems that his mum and dad went over the edges. He could read already, of course, by the time he got to what everyone called big school. If by big they meant a hundred tiny humans making their bewildered way into learning. He was so advanced. He had been taught well, with kindness, mostly. Karen's childhood visiting his, only now with pills, so it didn't overstay its welcome. She used to read to him because it was something that was just theirs. Something from her own childhood that she could give him. Something, the only thing, that was good and right. She remembers reading great expectations to him. The little boy was called Philip, like him. He was too young to understand it, Philip Pirrip. But he loved it when anyone in the book called him Pip. And so that's what she used to call him, Pip. Pip. Barry, his dad, her husband, the man of the house, did his bit, educating Philip at home. Karen remembers how he would knock Philip on the side of the head if he got things wrong. She can still hear Philip's mantra of Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, whack, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the forgotten Wednesday and the crack in the face. Philip's mouth in an O of pain and surprise, replaced too quickly by expectation and acceptance. Thinking of that, and so many other things, Karen wonders, what have they taught him, really? As he lies there now, oblivious to anything but what's in front of him, she notices for what must be the millionth time the way his legs bend up from the knees and cross at the ankles, upright in the air. The only part of him he will let stand up for itself. His head has started to drop a little, but his eyes still hold the gaze of the TV, and his mouth still lives in that O. What are you watching? she asks. Just some programme, he replies, seeing her for the first time. As he does so, he gives her a smile, and his mouth is a slash of crooked, white and fleshy lips. It lasts a second before it's back in the O. He is so wrapped up in the telly, she can understand why. But it means he doesn't see her open the door onto the tiny balcony, just enough room for a clothes horse and the little bike he's quickly outgrown. A mug of milky tea gone cold and silvery. It means he doesn't see her come up behind him and pull him up with a strength she doesn't even know she has. What are you doing? he asks. The panic rising too easily in his voice. What have I done? But he assumes he has done anything, kills her. And she is now surer than ever that she has to kill him. When she tries to bend him backwards over the balcony, 
she notices how tall he's got, how skinny he is, the hole in his school jumper. She sees fresh bruises like squashed blueberries on his neck and arms. She tries to explain to him, tries to make him see that this world isn't like the stories he watches on telly. It's a world where he gets bruises she is tired of counting. A world where he can't bring anyone home from school. A world of flying, fractured furniture and uncertainty. She doesn't want to be in it. And she doesn't want him in it without her. And your dad doesn't know how to make chips! She hears herself saying. He doesn't answer because his mouth is frozen in that O. That he doesn't scream or fight back hard enough kills her again. They are there for what seems like hours. But when she loosens her grip and lets go of her son, she notices the same programme is still on the telly. But he doesn't go back to watching it. Instead, he runs out, not even stopping to put his shoes on. So my second pick is from London season number two, and that was um, when we were doing things when we were going back and forth between East London and, and South London to the Dog Star and that's the Hackney right. Attic. Yeah. So the season one was all in the Leicester Square Theatre yeah. and that was kind of like in the basement in sort the basement. of room. And it's a great name for your CV, the Leicester Square Theatre, but we didn't find the room ideal for what we do. And we didn't... The real problem was it was a bit like in Edinburgh, you had to get out yeah. um, because there was another show coming in oh. and that didn't really work for our London shows. We like to take more time. <laughs> Which is what we started to do with the second season. Yeah. And I think uh, that that's when it started getting even harder to pick between. But um, this performer really stood out. She was, I saw her first in Brixton and she just, I think she blew a lot of people away. Yeah. I think she was, she was really exceptional. Um, She's a a young woman who is just, some of it's tragic, some of it's not, but I think the, the voice that she has both musically and then as a, as an artist, what she's trying to say is really excellent. And that's uh, Emily Capel, um, the musician who you will hear now. Red sore knuckles and tattoos across my back. I'm off to Brixton Prison, although I know I ain't done jack. And my mama writes me letters, I must get one each month. Well, this month I've had no letters, maybe my Tattoos across my back I'm off to Brixton prison No, I know I ain't done jack And my mama writes me letters I must get one each month Well, this month I had no letters Maybe my mama's got the hunt She says she'd be out with her mate Stella Or she out late dressed like Cinderella should have seen her face when I got home Standing next to my papa They can off me Can't see the view out of the window Cause the bars in my face The 
Shot a pistol right through someone's head. Red sword knuckles and tattoos across my back. I'm free from Brixton prison because my life is back on track. And I walk across the courtyard, the chains come loose around my feet. And I can hear my people shouting, it's the release of the notorious Emily. for clapping at me. Uh, my name's Emily and uh, obviously I do singing. Um, I'm really bad at talking in between songs, that's why I sort of just came up, yeah. So uh, this, uh, so yeah, my, I don't really have, I was talking to Brian here a second ago and she was like, do you, what do you know about tragedy and that? And I was like, um, my dog died. But um, yeah, I don't really have anything that's sad that's happened in my life. But my EP is called Who Killed Smiley Culture? Um, but we all know who did it now, so it's not really... But yeah, um, so... Um, do you know what I mean? Really rubbish this. So yeah, the next song I'm going to sing is called Plastic, and it's off my EP. And uh, this is about, like, singing. So yeah, I'm just going to... I'm just gonna... So many different faces like you And I wear diamonds if you like Cause it's something different for you But the bigger boys will take it If I played naked I'd lose I know I'm not supposed to But if I'm not on the poster we're through Just because I'm acoustic don't mean I This is plastic, don't mean I can't be smashed in two. Am I all up there making it? Then I'm down here making it too. So go and sing your sad songs about late nights and mad ones. I love how you impress them. Tell them you're a Kardashian and I'll be a musician. So maybe listen, cause when it comes down to it. Until the situation gets out of hand And night after night It's the hype and the hype of shit bands I know you're up making statements I'm out here on the pavements with the fans Tell me I'll shine these papers I'll make you famous in town Not in my town Just because I'm acoustic Don't mean I can't Don't mean I can't be smashing too Am I all up there making it? I'm down here making it too So write another anthem The guest played in the back room Upload it on YouTube Get 15,000 
take it down for a minute and I'm going to play a song called Louis Matthews and I, uh, I wrote Louis Matthews about someone that I stalked on Facebook I don't know if you lot have Facebook, I know this not you all look like a pretty trendy bunch and uh, you wouldn't have Facebook I do so, uh, and so does Louis Matthews so uh, yeah this song's called Louis Matthews thanks so much Facebook page like three times a day I'm the investigator of your status and each time that I smile I'm on your profile just to check that there aren't any haters I like the things that you like and the way that you comment your profile page and all the things that are on it you're my desktop you're on my backdrop the only reason that I turn on my laptop So let's do what Tupac and Biggie never did And I'll be making love on your memory stick And by the time you've gone offline I've said my goodbyes and I'll put you on standby for tonight I can go through your pictures for like hours at once and laugh about the things that you do when you're drunk on my newsfeed when you get freshly tagged how oh, I'd like to leave a comment saying I would tap that it says you're single and that's me too so I turn off my broadband and think about you but Tupac and Biggie never did and I'll be making love on your memory stick and by the time you've gone offline I said my goodbyes and I'll pick you on standby for tonight She told me I should swear in songs I'd have a number one hit But I think songs about relationships are usually so shit and I know I'm nothing special maybe we're not for the best but one day Louis Matthews 
refuge Won't you accept my friend request? And we can just do what you pack And Biggie never did And I'll be making love on your memory stick And by the time you've gone offline I've said my goodbyes And I'll put you on standby for tonight I'll put you on standby for tonight I'll put you on standby for tonight Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. That's nice. Thanks. Um, I do mean that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to sing um, a song called Who Kills Smiley Culture Now. I don't often play this, but because this is so, like, in a lovely way, singing in your living room, you're all, like, here. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll sing it to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Rolling, the grind gets so near. If they come a knocking, I say you weren't here. Yeah, I am cool, man. I know the rock man with two snooker balls tied up in a sock, man. The real slim shady just stood up and put one of his fingers on each hand up. And the streets are now empty, but the popo still look. And there's me thinking, I'm so insecure. And I am more qualified than Professor Green And that little ginger's got nothing on me So listen up, baby, to the things I taught ya Who killed Smiley Coaster? Well, it's all right for me I'm not in the business of the lies that you told Little Wayne and his missus Whipping the lovers you knew couldn't hack it Just to sell stories on what's up his bracket And I look alright in them apple bottom jeans But the boots with the fur they did nothing for me So listen up baby to the things that you order Who killed Smiley Culture? West side, west side, I'm gonna set this night on fire. West side, west side, I'm gonna set this party on fire. Set it on fire, I'm gonna set you on fire. I'm going to do one more and then I'm going to get off. Um, so uh, this song's called It's Happening Again. And uh, I wrote this because like, I gig all the time. And uh, sometimes, definitely not here, but sometimes you meet really annoying people. And, uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so I, I end up writing about them. So uh, this is called It's Happening Again. Thank you so much. I'm Emily Capel. I don't know if I said that.
were so desperate to impress that I heard they got undressed and all of their clothes on the floor got picked up by mothers and yeah I listened to their sound but we had no common ground and who am I to sing you guys a cover they left me for the TV forgetting all about me I moved on to their voters and their lovers and I seen them gig not like what they once did because now i don't think they even have one another so i said no or not again this is happening just like how you said and i said no oh no 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 if you see them you have to let them go so desperate for the radio to play all of her songs you know she took her own life with a hit ha! she wrote a christmas number one but it's not merry it's too glum and she can't even be bothered to record it she hit all of her notes didn't drink and never smoked became addicted to you boys who play music and her dedicated fans only cared about her man they realised her music was just bullshit So I said no, oh not again This is happening just like how you said And I said no, oh no, 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 no If you see them you have to let them go And I said no, oh not again This is happening just like how you said I said no, oh no, 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 no If you see them you have to let them go And I said no, oh not again This is happening just like how you said And I said no, oh no, 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 no If you see them you have to let them go Thank you so much Okay so that's Emily Capel, and she is again an example of like an, a starting out artist, I think. But although she's, I feel like she's going to go big places. And uh, it's one of the things that impresses me about her is her youth, which is not to say that in a patronising way. I'm just dead jealous that I wasn't that yeah, good when yeah, I was yeah. that age. Where aren't we all? Yeah. What was I doing when I was her age? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so your next pick is from London season two, three. Three. Oh yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, this one. I'll catch up in the end. You'll get that. And this is when you decided that we were going to theme them all. And this, this made this was the season that was the hardest to pick from, because I have to say, the quality was just so high that I I think I've written down like I was trying to triage it, and I got picks from every single one of our shows because it was just impossible. Like two, three of them that were just so good, and like we did Tragic History, which was. The first one I performed at, but yeah. actually, I mean, not not because of me, but because of all the other performers, it was an amazing night. That was an amazing night. Um, theming the nights, kind of like, yeah, give, give, giving that extra theme gives that different focus mm-hmm. to what happens, and that did definitely change things. Sometimes the themes were like impossible to actually find <laughs> acts to difficult. do because they were weird <laughs> themes, and some of our best themes weren't up. Some of the best nights that we created out of those themes didn't appeal to the public because they were weird names. Yeah, and yeah. then other ones did. And so we had some big audiences and some small. Yeah. That one, this one is from what, the first show? Is from the first show. Because um, I also really liked uh, 
tragic horror, and I think that'll actually come up in, in some of the other specials, but I was trying to pick between Tragic Friends, which was the Edinburgh Return show, which uh, there were so many good performances, and the first one we did, which was sort of a mirror. It was sort of our return show from the first season of Edinburgh, and that was Tragic Christmas. But there was just one performance, and I think I think you'll agree. I think you yeah. agreed on the night. It just it was exceptionally personal um, and brilliant, and just this is a, a poet who spoke from the heart, and that's Richard Tyrone Jones uh, at Tragic Christmas. So put your hands together for Richard Tyrone Jones. <laughs> possible I might need this. Uh, how do you top someone doing a song about a relative of theirs almost dying at Christmas? The answer, for those of you that have been to stand-up tragedy before, should be obvious. Uh, I never really uh, believed in the whole concept of Christmas as a kind of redemptive or, or healing uh, time until uh, last Christmas. Uh, I always thought, well, Christmas, uh, that can only be explained by the fact that uh, Santa Claus must be being punished for having once done something incredibly terrible to children. Uh, but uh, no, it, it was revealed to me last year. I, I seem to have tried to write a ten-minute story uh, of, about my true life experiences and actually written an entire show from which I'm now doing a ten-minute extract. It's... November 2012. My mum has early onset dementia. My dad, a 62-year-old workaholic with Asperger's who for the last 10 years has literally read nothing but the Daily Mail, has reacted to this unconstructively (laughs) with a descent into screaming madness. We have had the altercation that we should have had when I was a teenager. But after that, he behaved himself almost impeccably for my sister's wedding. It looked as if the medications were working. But a week or so afterwards, at home, he he started doing the pacing again, chanting like a, a cult member, a stuck novelty record. They're going to put me away! They're going to put me in jail! referring to his paranoia about an insignificant benefits fraud. And worse, you shouldn't be here! You shouldn't be here! At first, I thought that he meant that I should have left home by now, which I had done, (laughs) or that I shouldn't be there to see him in this state, but soon realised, no, he meant that we, his three children, should never have been born. It had always been my mum who wanted kids, and that explained why Dad had never really paid attention to us. Madness of any kind strips back the layers of propriety. The Russian doll that is the personality to the embryo inside of the raw psyche. My mum's dementia was revealing her essential self to be pleasant, uncomplaining, loving and concerned. Dad's to be one of... Paranoia and obsessive self-reproach. I was back home between shows in November when he woke me up early in the morning by banging around shouting desperately, Where's the notes? 
Where's the notes? I was half asleep, but roused myself quickly in case this was something bad. It was. Downstairs, in his pyjamas and old football manager coat, he'd given up finding the notes and made his way to the back garden, got a garden chair out, then went back into the garage and returned with plastic bags which he was desperately trying to stuff down his throat. I pulled them out as fast as he could. Then I had to stay outside to get mobile reception while I called an ambulance. He came back out with a Stanley knife. I had to disarm him of that before he could cut his own throat in front of me. Then, when he tried to get up again, punch him in the guts and threaten him with a beating to stop him from killing itself. Strange logic. But this time, I actually had no stomach for violence, but I couldn't think of any other way. I had to wait for the police to arrive before the ambulance could respond because there was an alert on the house from the last time he'd done this. And hey presto, when the police arrived, Dad was suddenly reasonably reasonable again and they persuaded him to go back to the ward later I'd realised that I couldn't remember if I'd patted my dad on the shoulder as he went into the ambulance or, or hugged him after I'd punched and restrained him I didn't realise then that in what manner I'd touched him would become important exhausted and angry I phoned my granddad, then 90, to come and look after mum and decided that, yeah, I would catch the train I'd booked to the hotel I'd booked in Manchester and would shag the nice 22-year-old girl I'd met up there while touring my show. Should I have gone in the ambulance with my dad, like the police wanted? I still don't think it would have made any difference. Life is a constant series of decisions between spending your life ameliorating present misery or chasing the chance of future happiness, no matter how slim the chance is. And she was a real goer. <laughs> My dad was in and out of hospital. Under and out from section, I forget how many times. But... He could still act normal enough that he was able to duck out through the mental ward security doors behind a visitor, get on a bus to Dudley Town Centre, drink a pint of Guinness in Weatherspoons, ever the scrimper, then return with a knife and try to cut his throat again. Apparently this time he got a formidable scar. The mental hospital was right next to the A&E, so I could tell myself that this was another cry for help, the fourth. I talked to him on the phone and, and told him he didn't have to worry about money or anything. We'd take care of mum to remove the pressure from him. That We loved him. He was even more unresponsive than before. But I thought, due to our fractious history, it might be best if I stayed away. He'd never taken any advice from anyone while he was well, except for from the Daily Mail. So if he did recover, it wouldn't be thanks to me. If he didn't, well, I didn't want to remember him as being in a hospital, a huge scar on his neck. I didn't want madness. 
sadness to run my life. So I went to Sardinia as I'd planned to flee the darkness of winter. I didn't learn much Italian, just ended up wandering about alone in the off-season, but listening to every single Adam and Joe podcast ever recorded did take my mind off things. On 9th of December, my sister sent me an encouraging picture of the folks decorating the tree. On Monday, the 17th of December, I'd been drinking exclusively, excusably heavily in the youth hostel bar in Cagliari, watching from the sidelines as some locals did traditional singing and dancing with no news being good news. I'd already decided to come back for Christmas, booked my flight for the next day. Then I checked emails. My sister wanted me to phone her. I typed, oh, he's not gone back into the hospital again, has he? You better email me what's happened. She did. It felt like the bottom had fallen out of the world. I thought I was going to be sick. But I didn't. He'd been on weekend release from the hospital due to go back that morning. The section had run out, so he didn't have to, but I'll never know if he knew that. He visited my sister on Sunday and recklessly put his hand in a drain filled with drain and blocker without gloves, but at least he'd wanted to help. He'd quietly watched BBC Sports Personality of the Year with my mum before going to bed. That Monday morning, nurses were supposed to have come round to assess mum's care needs. My sister came round early to meet them and instead found him hanging in the hallway. I imagined him again, again, because I wasn't there. So let's portray him in detail and exhibit so I can finally cut him down. The plastic curtain cord speaks of improvisation, but not snapping. He must have risen early, not manic, planned it. His silk effects pyjamas clean, a small miracle. The 35-year-old banisters held him as he crouched in an impossible position, facing the wall as if weeping, his face grey as his hair, yet peaceful. There would have been kicking, but not enough to wake anyone. I do wonder if he thought about who'd find him dangling like a Christmas decoration, a memory to be brought out every year, every year. My sister had to find the neighbour, go upstairs, wake my mum and make sure she got downstairs to the neighbours without once looking back at him like... Lot's wife in reverse. Thankfully, she managed it. The ambulance service actually asked her to cut him down with a pair of scissors, which seems a little insensitive. And given the metal within a plastic cord thing, also ignorant of material sciences. Like I say... It should have been the worst Christmas ever. But it wasn't. Because 
if nothing else, Christmas that year was certainly purposeful. My Austrian sister returned and we fell upon administrative tasks with Teutonic gusto. Strange relief from thinking about what had happened. Our Christmas list that year was Spartan. Coroner's report, death certificate, funeral date. But the most important task was to cheer mum up and take her mind off it. In that, well, the dementia helped. But so did Christmas. On Christmas Day, we, me, my Austrian sister, mum, brother-in-law, granddad and me went round to my non-Austrian sisters who cooked the best Christmas meal ever. Roast turkey, Yorkies, cheesy leeks and red cabbage, roasted onion, sweet potato mash and asparagus, neeps and tatties, pigs in a blanket. My sister went a bit crazy. The crackers, hats and fine wines from the cellar. We were determined that this wouldn't defeat us. We sat in the front room, my sister's daft cocker spaniels on my mum's lap. One dressed as a reindeer, the other as Carmen Miranda. Traditional Christmas, you know. <laughs> of course she cried. My mum's always been lachrymose, but they were good tears. Tears of relief that madness had not spoiled Christmas. The spaniels didn't quite lick them off her cheek, but they could have done. It was... Almost that Dickensian. That we were there to hold her and tell her to imagine Dad had gone to live in Cyprus, where everyone reads nothing but the Daily Mail, <laughs> like he dreamed of doing when he was alive. I wish my dad could have been there, but then I'd spent my whole life wishing he'd been there emotionally. He hadn't been destroyed by his hip replacements, his retirement, his lack of education, or mum's illness. In the end, he'd been destroyed by his lack of empathy, of love, for us, for himself, for life. I often worry, every winter in fact, that I've inherited that. But last Christmas... The love of my family was all that I could ask for. And looking round, I knew that now that every member of my family was finally able to give it. Okay, my apologies to Beckhill, who is a comedian and has to come on next and make you laugh after that. But luckily, uh, we've got Dave first. Thank you very much. So, I mean, that was from Tragic Christmas, which was, yeah, I, I think one of our, our most successful nights. It was a fundraiser for the organisation Arts Emergency, who do really important work, like in terms of. Uh, 
advocacy and also uh, mentoring of people who are from different backgrounds that can't get in to academia and uh, they're sort of getting people into the arts and into the humanities and providing support for them I know that's a theme mm-hmm. that's close to your heart it's also it's, close to mine yeah I was going to say it is very important to me but you're also personally involved with Arts Emergency right Dave? I, I do I do get involved with them as much as possible I, I can't I, I was funding them I was mm-hmm. uh, but, but my, my finances have taken a tragic turn and I can't actually um, give them money anymore, but, but I do as much support, work as I right? can. Yeah, right. And like, I, yeah. And people should definitely check out Arts Emergency and find out what they're doing. It's really important. But uh, Tragic Christmas was a strange night for me. Like, it was one of our best nights, but it was hard for me because I like did a lot of personal stuff, and it's a very I don't like Christmas very much. I've got a complicated relationship with it, so it was a weird night. Like, I feel like half the people in that room loved Christmas, and half the people in that room yeah. hated Christmas, and it kind of like made it complicated for everyone I think. yeah it did i'm actually wearing um christmas socks right now it's <laughs> it's september i just i i'm i'm not particular about the socks that i wear and, and i was wearing a pair in edinburgh that were christmas socks and dave was like oh my god you're wearing christmas socks yeah but i forewarned him she just chases me around with christmas things <laughs> everywhere we go so i mean and richard's performance like you said earlier on it was very very powerful very from the heart it was a raw performance um and you know one of those kind of moments on stage where someone like really properly maybe cry i think at stand-up tragedy and i remember sort of hugging him clumsily afterwards in in an attempt to try and uh give something back to him because it was such an uh, amazingly brave performance and a gift to everybody in the room i think I think so too. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard for Beck Hill to follow afterwards. She was, she oh, had, but she did. She had a brilliant. She, she um, was piece one of. of she was a very close that. pick for me as well. Yeah, she, her, her story was really good. You can listen back to that on the Tragic Christmas episodes. So next up, we've got the final London season. So this is going into this year. This, this happened year. earlier this year. Yeah. So it's it's the first three seasons. We don't have Tragic Autumn is on the sixteenth of October. Um, we haven't had yet, but this was based on 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 Tragic Spring, and uh, there were a couple of really, really amazing performances, but I think the one the one that stood out for me was Cameron Moore's performance, which is part true story, part theatre, and for me, Cameron Moore has been someone that Dave has been, last season in Edinburgh, was really uh, actively talking and promoting and, and was really blown away by, but this was the first moment I'd seen Cameron perform, and since then I'm a massive Cameron advocate. We went to see her in Edinburgh this year, and I would recommend everything she does, but this this was the distillation, I think. It was very personal, and it was a different... I think it wasn't what people were expecting from Tragic Sex, which was the act it was in, and I'm really glad she did it. Right. I tried to pick all of the people for Tragic Sex to do stuff that wouldn't be expected for Tragic Sex because I th- I thought that the words tragedy and sex could could create some pretty sex negative performances. So I chose very, very carefully about who I had. And I agree, Cameron Moore just blew me away. Put your hands together, everybody, for Cameron Moore! So, Phone Horror, the title of my show, it, it's, it's just, it's not about telemarketing, all right? A lot of people think that it must be something kind of sly and funny. It's, it was actually a phrase drawn from the training manual that my boss gave me uh, when I first started doing phone sex work. Um, I've been doing phone sex for six years now. 
my six year anniversary was April 22nd. And then I <laughs> left here for, for the UK for four and a half months. So it's all good. I don't have to talk to wankers for four and a half months, which is great. <laughs> um, it's uh, not something like when I first started doing it, I had a lot of shame around it. Because um, it's not something that you would. It's not like a normal career choice that's presented, right? It's not something you would run across at the high school career fair. Oh, look, phone sex, that looks good. Um, no, um, there's a lot of stigma attached to it, like many sex work uh, options. Um, I started doing phone sex in April of 2009 when uh, the like a major recession hit around the world. I was laid off from my job um, doing marketing for a textbook publishing company. So I started doing phone sex work because I was desperate. Um, I kept doing it because I turned out to be really good at it. Um, it yeah, no, it's like this amazing convergence of, of a skill sets that are not normally rewarded out in the real world, right? A motor mouth and a gutter mind, boom, right there. <laughs> right there. So it, it turned out to be actually a very good career choice for me. Um, it, the pay is shit. Uh, the hours are shit. Um, they do give me some flexibility to do the playwriting and performing and rehearsing that I want to do. But at any moment, I could get a phone call. Like I could be baking cookies. I could be in the middle of fucking. And if the phone rings, bam, I got to drop it and be present for somebody else's sexual fantasy, which probably doesn't align with mine at all. Um, and I'm pretty broad-minded, but realistically, like fantasies don't work like that. You have a very specific thing that you like to think about, and, and I just happen to be open enough to conceptualize other people's fantasies, but I don't want that. Um, which brings me to the, the point of what I wanted to talk tonight about. A lot of people, a lot of people ask me questions, obviously, uh, after my shows, um, or just randomly on Facebook, because that happens sometimes, they'll ask me questions, which is understandable. Phone sex isn't really talked about very much. Uh, most people think it must have died out with the internet, um, which is not true. It's still very alive and well. Um, and, and one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, do you ever get emotionally involved? Do you ever get emotionally involved? And there are two things that they might be asking with that particular question. They might be asking, do you actually jerk off while you're on the phone? Which I'm like, no, fuck, no, no. Um, I don't, I don't. Uh, I'm just answering that in case you're wondering. I don't jerk off while I'm talking to clients. It's um, uh, like, like anything... Um, like anything involving words, like there, uh, phone sex, you have to have one person at least in charge steering that ship safely to the post-orgasmic shore. Someone has to be in control, and if I'm actually jerking off and enjoying myself, I can't control that ship. Uh, and, and that's, they may like to think that I'm doing it for my pleasure, they might like to think that I'm having orgasms. Um, the callers, some of them really do like to think that I'm having orgasms, but frankly, if they're asking me to have nine orgasms in seven minutes, they don't really care if I'm having an orgasm or not. They just want to think that they're giving me that many orgasms. Um, so there's that question, like, am I, am I jerking off? Am I getting involved in that way? The other angle to that question is, um, am I getting attached? Am I falling in love? I think that's in some of the, the movie representations of phone sex, that there's that danger that you might want to meet your clients, that you might want, you might want to go and, and find them out in the real world. And um, the answer to that is also, no, God, no, why, no? I don't want that at all. Um, there are, of course, clients that I, that I uh, like for some of the same reasons that I'm a very popular phone sex operator myself. They 
They have good voices. They are articulate. They uh, they are open and sharing about and honest about their their thing. So I hear that and I respond to those voices, and that's natural. But I never want to get involved because that would involve going off the grid, and that would involve me losing my job. And the few times that I've had pressure from clients to meet up with them somehow, to go off and meet them somehow, to 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 to, to webcam with them, I'm always like, if you truly love me, you wouldn't want me to lose my job, would you? And they'd never really answer that outright. They don't care as long as I take care of their boner. Um, so I don't get emotionally involved in that way. There is no client who is worth me losing my job for. Um, there is no client. Um, but uh, it's a service job. It's, a, it's, a, it's work. It's a service profession. And uh, how many people here have worked in restaurants, have done like restaurant service, bar service? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so that is also a service job. And, and you know when you're working in restaurants, like I've worked in restaurants, and you, and you, and you get regulars, right? You get regulars who, who you're happy to see come into your section, right? You know that they're going to be nice, and they're going to be pleasant, and, and they're, gonna, they're not going to make difficulties for you. And like in the States, they tip, you know, so here that's not so much a thing, but, but like, you know, in the States, they tip well, like a good regular is going to lay down that money and tip well. Um, and those are awesome regulars. And then you have shit regulars who always pick your station, but are shitheads. And so they, they make trouble for you all the time. They're fussy. They're, they're, they're assholes in general. And, and they always order gross things that you don't even want to touch when you bring it out to the table. So there are those regulars, right? Um, so those regulars, fuck them. I do well with them, I do well with them, I'm a professional. <laughs> but there are regulars who I like. There are definitely regulars who I like. Um, I wanna tell you tonight about one regular, his name is Larry. Um, and I first met Larry, I say met, I, met is always gonna be in quotes, all right? I didn't meet him, but like I first got introduced to Larry. Uh, he, he ordered a 10 minute package of time um, my company, you can order packages of time, seven minutes, 10 minutes, 12, 15. He ordered 10 minutes of time, and then he, uh, he wanted me to, to like spew out like all the filth that I could throw at him, right? Like, call me whatever, you dirty, cock-sucking, panty-sniffing little pervert. You want to fucking get me in your ass? You want me to fucking ram you? Yeah, this is whole, all of it, all of it. Didn't matter. He was like completely non-denominational about his tastes. He didn't care as long as it involved dirty words um, and really, really dirty words. And so I was just laying into him for all I could for a minute, and then suddenly, he starts talking about gardening and he starts talking about how well the rhododendrons were doing this year and I'm going along I'm like okay this is part of the deal right with phone sex professional phone sex is is a lot of guys they, they tend to jump tracks I, I think it's partly like the ADD brought on by the internet um, you can have 20 screens open and they can be clicking through and getting ideas from all of them um, so I've learned to be able to keep up. Like, if they start talking about roses, I will downshift, and I will start talking about roses. I know a little bit about gardening. It's okay. So, um, so he's, talking about his, he's talking about his roses and his rhododendrons. This is Alabama, so the, cli the climate is really good for it. And uh, about two minutes before the end of the call, I'm keeping an eye on the time, right? He says... Uh, I say, well, Larry, I have to let you know we have about two minutes left. Did you want to? Did you want to come today? And he said, Well, no, you got to. Otherwise, they're just going to keep talking forever. They're not keeping track of time, right? Do you want to come today? And he said, 
Oh, sweetheart, I came eight minutes ago. <laughs> this is great. This is just great. We're just talking, right? And so this was what he wanted to do. This was his deal. So I had him, I had been talking to him. I ended up talking to him like, oh, I don't know, like every month every three weeks maybe for a few years and every time it was the same thing 10 minutes he'd order a minute and he always requested me like requesting is awesome because I get an extra buck from that right so a minute of filth and nine minutes of gardening and (laughs) you have to admire that kind of dedication to a hubby um I'm talking about the gardening of course uh so he would, you know, he would talk, we would talk about the state of his garden, and he told me about his wife, how she just didn't want to do sex anymore. And he was an old man. He was an old man. He was, I think he said he was like 67, 68. She just didn't want to do it anymore. He just had needs and urges. And, and I asked if she knew about him calling, and, and he said, yeah, she's fine with it. You know, it's just, she doesn't want me, doesn't want me bothering her anymore. Um, so... But he's an old man, he had medical problems. He would talk to me about his medical problems. He said he goes see a, a cute little massage therapist down there. <laughs> and she was so cute and everything. But she never did anything with him, but you know, she was cute. Um, so we'd talk about this, and he would talk about whatever flowers were happening. It was flowers, it wasn't like vegetables, it was flowers. And, and he would um, talk about how, some, occasionally he'd veer into dirty territory again, how he'd love to see me weeding naked, you know, pulling weeds naked, getting down there in the mud, getting all dirty. Rawr. And then he'd just get right back to the rhododendrons, right? <laughs> I don't even know what a rhododendron looks like. Someone can tell me later. Um, or, or he would talk about, one time he, would talk, he talked about a lot about uh, crystal burgers. Anybody know uh, crystal burgers? You don't know crystal burgers. It's a, it's a southern thing. And it's a big deal in Alabama. And he wanted to take me on a date to crystal burgers. And he tried to explain to me with all the passion of a foodie about why crystal burgers were the best damn burgers in the South. Right? It's all about the chopped onions, apparently. Chopped onions on the, on the, the burgers. They're just sliders. You know, they're little tiny burgers. So he, 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 that for him was an idea of a great date with me. A bunch of nude weeding in the mud and then we're going out for crystal burgers afterwards. Which, great, you know, salt of the earth. I love it. Um, so this was the way things went along for some time. He knew my birthday, I knew his birthday. He would always call on his birthday. And uh, I remember looking up about a year and a half ago and going, shit, I haven't heard from Larry in a while. And that's something that I always knew about clients. Because when we don't hear from them, it's not like we can follow up, right? It's not like we could call them up afterwards and say, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> you know, how you been? You need any help with your Woody? That's all right. You know, like we can't do that calling. We can't follow up. It's not that kind of business. If they don't call, we lose them. And we don't know why. Could be their wife finds out. Could be they switch to another company. Could be they die. And Larry was an old man, and he was very sick, very sick. And I haven't heard from him. I looked before I left. I haven't heard from him in three years. He is probably dead. And there is no way that I will ever know what happened to him. So I do get emotionally involved. Uh, 
I can't afford to think about it too much, but I do get emotionally involved. And uh, just because I take money for it doesn't mean it hurts any less. Cameron Moore, everybody. And yeah, so that was from Tragic Sex, and that's probably my favourite one of our of our kind of, I don't know, one of my favourite shows. I mean, you've picked pretty much a lot of my favourite shows so far. Tragic Christmas and uh, Tragic Spring are both kind of like examples to me of what stand-up tragedy can be. They were like, mm. you know, I had this crazy idea, and then you don't know if it's ever going to come into fruition, yeah. and it has. It has a few it times has. now, and that's been good. So that's the end of the London seasons. Now we're going to go back in time, yeah. back to our first Edinburgh. Um, oh, God, our first Edinburgh. Our first Edinburgh. Feels like a long time, Edinburgh, first Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, this one was a bit, this was a bit difficult to pick from because um, this one, oh, it had everything that, listening back to it, everything that I felt about the first Edinburgh as well. But one of the things we kind of, we were in this weird, we were in this lovely venue given to us by the PBH Free Fringe in the spoken word section at the Fiddler's Elbow, which is something else now and was something else. Yeah, it changed its name in the middle of the run, everybody listening. That's quite hard when you're trying to sell shows there if it's got a different name, the venue, to the one that's on your flyers. Yeah, that was difficult. But that Edinburgh was really... It felt like we were running on all guns and it was very DIY and we were everywhere all the time just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And one of the things about the shows I found was that it's a lot of us, uh, a lot of the team performing, a lot of the performers were staying with us. It felt very yeah. DIY in a good way. Um, I found it difficult to pick from some of them because some of them were favorites and friends of mine that I'd seen performing for the first time in a while. Like I'd never really seen Harv perform, who's our technical director. And I'd never seen my friend Una, who we brought over specifically before. And like she's got an entire career now in Second City in Chicago and being brilliant. But... Those were some of my favourites as well. But. One of many people from Standard Tragedy who are doing amazing things who sort of came came as starting out people and now a, a kind of mid-career sort of position that's sort of doing better, yeah. But I think the performer that I picked, the performance I picked, was sort of the the distillation of this because this Edinburgh, she really... We, we brought her back out to do something amazing and she is doing amazing, amazing things. But it's when the first time I heard her and that was uh, Louise Fizakli, the poet. And just hearing her words, I, I think everyone will agree, are just exceptional. Okay, hi, I'm Louise. I'm a poet from the north of England. You can stop laughing now. <laughs> Here comes the sad poetry. Okay, um, this first poem's a little bit about my teenage years and a little bit about the girl next door, just to set the scene. The girl next door, she's no mum. Uh, and her dad, he's a postman by day and a bouncer by night, like Mr. Domestic Violence, I call him. Um, last weekend, no word of a lie, um, he's shouting... Admit it, admit it, admit it. Next thing I know, his girlfriend's on the street, no clothes on. I'm like rifling through my wardrobe. What can I get that would fit her? But, you know, in case she leaves him, you know, I don't need back. Um, next thing we know, the door slams. Two old boots, a T-shirt and a bra, but no knickers for her. So she puts them on and then sleeps in the car. Anyway, so this, this poem is about, it's about girl next door. Girl next door. That baby next door, she is boozing like a badass. That baby next door, she's all orange, backcomb, eyelash. She is vodka, it's her bottle, but I've seen her suck her thumb. 
It's a funny sort of milkshake, but the boys still come. That baby next door, she is flicking six stumps in me garden, and the boys are buzzing round, they're all revving rips and add-ons. That baby next door sees a lot of ultraviolence, and I don't know if it's better when she's wailing or she's silent. But the nights are getting lighter, and I hope it's going to be a summer of picking daisies for her, not a daisy chain summer, because she loves him, she loves him not. She loves him, she loves him not. She loves him, she loves him not. She loves him, she loves him, she loves him. She loves him not at 14 years old, at 14 years fraught. Half sherbet inside, blown alive, blossomed on school fields, parks, battered cars. She slaps roaming hands and wears wonder bras. Jailbait, really. Sugar-coated to his 18 years big. Oh, what big tawny eyes he has to see in her. Little old, little told, little souls, her. A woman, a lover, a mother, his wife, his council castle princess, his job seekers, distraction. They sit, talk, pick, petals till the daisies of summer are done and the sun spell dandelions turn winter white and wise <sighs> old heads on young stems predictable she loves him not he's once upon a next week deadbeat make some money on a bit of weed liam you smoked all the profits this prince charming wasn't the one she sighs about what a big girl she's become. And she goes to boxing to meet boys. And she goes to boxing for the noise. And she's boxing for the boys, boxing for the noise, boxing for the come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. One, two, one, two, keep your chin down and you'll be the hardest girl round town. And she even gives up smoking so she's got some money to train. And she even runs to school because she's got boxing on the brain. One, two, one, two, keep your chin down and you'll be the hardest girl round town. But to fight or not to fight, that is the question. Whether it's nobler to suffer the slings and sparrows pecking at your head and that crow is getting bolder. She should back off like I told her. Outrageous. Lady Fortune, Lady Luck, which way should she go? Because she's stuck between a bus stop and a hard place. She don't want a criminal record, but she's got to show a hard face. And she just wants to feel safe. She just wants to feel safe. Thank you. Very, very quickly, one short point about my neighbour. She's a baghead. Um, she's down the street, and one day she knocked on my door. This is called Bird Street, the street I live on. Knock, knock, knock. There's a beggar at the door. There's a baghead at the door. There's a fallen angel. There's a woman. There's a whore, St. Murray of Methadone, knocking to come in, child-sized, pin-thighs, questioning me, 
with lucid eyes. Her. Does anyone keep pigeons on this street? Me. Jesus Christ, why do I always attract the freaks? Her. I found this pigeon. It's struggling to breathe. Me. Pigeons are dirty, they carry disease. There's a rat with wings, there's a rat with wings. There's a fallen angel, there's a struggling thing. No vet for a pigeon, no RSPCA. And God knows who will help this smackhead today. Me. Uh, well, I don't keep pigeons, but she shoves a dying hope in a plastic bag through the crack in the door, through a crack of, in the chance of my pause for thought. And I'm no omnipotent ornithologist. Is it a pigeon or is it a dove? Me, revulsion, her, love, her. I'll knock on another door, missus. Dirty, blonde, feathers, racing heart, last slack, breath. No last rites for a pigeon. A paper sign in Murray's window. House to let will accept DSS and pets. Fumigators in and vermins out. And my house stinks of death and faith and doubt. Thank you. <laughs> Tragedy. So that was Louise, and I mean, it was—it's great that you picked her. I mean, I again, she was—that was a standout out moment for me. I mean, that that performance she did just didn't, because I mean, Louise is someone, full disclosure, who I went to university with, and I knew her, and she, she was in the first show I ever took to Edinburgh. We were both in a play together, and I hadn't seen her for years, and I booked her not knowing if she'd be any good, but just you know, I had a lot of slots to fill, and I thought it would be you know interesting to put on people who might be good might be bad I, I i still stand by that kind of booking i still make those kind of bookings sometimes but um but she blew me away and, and proves that it is worth booking people yeah. when you don't know if they're going to be good or not because yeah she she did blow me away at the time and i hope she blew people away who are listening our first edinburgh like you say high energy i feel like we didn't sleep at all it was sleep. exhausting that it was chaotic there were loads of people coming through the house we were like a big family it's really stressful <laughs> But yeah. in a good way. And you were like nicknamed the d- the dad, and I was nicknamed the, the mum because we have different parental styles and we fit sort of the different. You know, we we, we go against gender expectations. Yeah, Dave is very caring and worrying, <laughs> and you know wants to make sure everybody's having a good time and taken care of and taking care of themselves. And you're like, you know, you, you lay down rules and you expect them to be followed, and. Uh, you know, you're very, very much like, you know, people can look after themselves. Come on. They're never going to learn unless you, you let them fail, you know, and that's good. I mean, you know, it's important to have both these influences and it's nice that we're bucking gender trends. But that was an intense kind of experience. It was only half a run as well. So we, we sort of managed to like pack in three Edinburgh to half of a half of the length of, of a run. And then the second time we went back and this is going to be from that one, right? Yep. Yeah, and, that's, and that's when we'd come to the Banshee Labyrinth, yeah, which, which is our kind of home. We'd like to yeah. we'd like to think, although you never know what you're going to get next. You never know. It definitely is our spiritual home. We spent a lot of time the first year there because it's the the home of spoken word at the PBH Free Fringe, and it was really nice to be in that room and have that slot. And I think that's when we sort of I think we hit a 
a groove yeah. where I feel like we figured out what we were doing and money was good and audiences were good and flyering was working and the performances were good, but it, we were still sort of acquiring new people. And actually, there were a lot of new people that we acquired that it was, again, hard to pick from. Tim Rouse, uh, the amazing storyteller, yeah. uh, came in and did things. And I think, I think I've got Tim in other slots, uh, in other specials. But it was that kind of thing where we found all these new people and new voices to bring in. And the one that I pick from this is a man who came and he's a comedian. But as I said, the things that I've actually sort of connected more with is when they tell true stories. Right. And he did a couple of different versions of different things for us, uh, which I think are great. And I think there, there's one about his dad, and then there's the one that I've chosen. But I think this represents that moment in that middle Edinburgh. Right. That everyone felt. And it had shockwaves throughout the entire comedy community, throughout the entire community. Um, and I think this is a spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's when Robin Williams died. Yeah. And uh, you should listen to Tamar Kitan and uh, his take on it. And people should be aware that this is so immediately after the event. It's like he wrote it that night, pretty much, and then performed it the next day. And put your hands together, everybody, for Tama Ketchan! Thanks, Dave. Hi, guys. Uh, so you guys heard about uh, Robin Williams killing himself, right? Yeah. Uh, that freaks me out. Uh, so I, I'm writing about that. Uh, so I didn't get much sleep, so forgive me, I'm not performing this, I'm more reading it, because I wrote it last night. If dream catchers worked, I'd get better sleep, I wish they did. Uh, so part of this, because I moved from Egypt to America when I was like eight years old, I immigrated, and, uh, do you guys remember Mork for Mork? Yeah. Yeah, so that was a really important show to me, and also there was one other film that Robin Williams did called Moscow on the Hudson, and, uh, those two things were really important to me, and that's, that's what I wrote about. So, um... Here it is. Uh, moving from Egypt to America, from the third world to the first world, was a lot like moving to another planet. So it's no surprise that my first hero was an alien who seemed to be from a kinder, gentler place. After our first few difficult years in the U.S., I uh, discovered a show called Mork and Mindy. Robin Williams was Mork for Mork, an alien from a foreign planet, just like me. And that somehow made me feel less alone. The only other thing I had ever watched was, as much as a boy, was a film called The Black Stallion. When my mom asked me why I kept watching that film so much, I said it was because the horse was a hero, and for once in an American film, the hero was Arabian. <laughs> Later in life, I heard that that short conversation had made my mom cry. Uh, but Mork for Mork was bigger than the Black Stallion to me. He was an alien on Earth who made me feel better for being an alien in America. He constantly made silly mistakes, which made me feel okay about the fact that I did too. My accent made me an outcast. No one wanted to sit next to the kid who, on the very first day of school, unintentionally but very loudly, went up to the man behind the cafeteria, behind the counter at the cafeteria, and said, I'd like a piece of chocolate cock, please. <laughs> I cringe when I now recall that the man I asked for that piece of cake was black. <laughs> But I also smile remember, when I remember that he laughed um, so hard that he had to cup his hands over his mouth and ran away from his post in hysterics. His laugh pleased me a lot. He told me he never laughed that hard at work um, before he put his hand on my shoulder and gave me, a, gave me a big piece of chocolate cake. I still feel the touch of his hand on my shoulder and the warmth of that genuine smile on his face. I needed that. I needed it the way a dehydrated athlete needed water. 
This moment made me feel special. It made me feel like I was funny, something I knew not everyone was. Until then, I'd felt like a caterpillar in a school full of butterflies. This moment was my cocoon. His laughter softened my embarrassment. His laughter made me laugh at me and taught me that it was okay to laugh at my mistakes because sometimes those mistakes create moments of joy. So again, I related to Mork for Mork because mis his mistakes brought me moments of joy. Robin Williams also made a film called Moscow on the Hudson, an amazing film about being an immigrant. An important film, I thought, because sometimes in America I felt that people were mean to immigrants. Um, and I feel that, that they didn't empathize with how difficult it was to, have, to move to a new country. We were aliens, after all, not human. I remember mo watching Moscow on the Hudson uh, in our first apartment in America, an apartment I remember well. It had a big kitchen window and a flower box full of mint leaves overlooking Sunset Boulevard. To this day, every time I smell mint, I see 70s Hollywood in my mind's eye. One early morning, that street was especially loud and filled with what looked like these giant colorful ants. But when my eyes adjusted to the morning light, those colorful ants transformed into tiny people running in the LA Marathon. I'd never seen a marathon before. Egypt had no room for such an event in its overpopulated streets. As I watched, my, my brain began to digest this new concept, and I began to envy the people running below. I envied how strangers on the sidelines would help and cheer people on and hand them water and give them words of encouragement. They ran mile after mile towards their exhausting goals. And I thought, why couldn't people be that kind of immigrants? We were chasing an exhausting goal, too, but no one offered support from, from my sidelines. My immigration marathon was filled with people yelling mean things like, learn to speak English, or uh, go back to where you came from. I hadn't become fully American yet, and people reminded me of that daily. Uh, I watched Moscow on the Hudson that same night that I experienced the LA Marathon, and that's when I began to grow very fond of Robin Williams. I was very young, but I had already noticed a pattern in his characters. He played, uh, the characters in his pro that he played in his prolific career all had the eyes of an outsider. Every single one had the facial expression of someone who wanted to fit in with others. So I didn't just like Mork for Mork anymore. I loved Robin Williams. Robin Williams did a lot of things for me that I wish my own father knew how to do. He comforted me and he made me feel less alone. I imagined what it would be like to have him as my father when my dad wasn't around. See, my dad was abused and that led to me being abused. I don't blame my dad for this anymore. I understand the dynamics of abuse now. I understand that the person who abused my dad was a vampire and that that vampire had bit my dad, turning him into a vampire. And as hard as my dad tried not to, my dad ended up biting me. And now I have to work really hard to not be a vampire. It's why I've stayed single my whole life. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid that the house my soul lives in is haunted, so I'm too afraid to let anyone move in. I'm afraid of having a kid and treating him the way my dad treated me. My dad died 12 years ago, but sometimes in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth or washing my face, I'll make an identical expression to one he would have made. My face will become his face, but just for a brief moment, and I'll quickly look away or I'll throw water on my face as if to wash it off, needing to bring the expression uh, to one that looks like me again. Sometimes I'll even say the words, you're not a vampire, to the scared face in the mirror, out loud. So Robin Williams was medicine for my fears because he was the opposite of vampire. Where vampires suck the life out of people, he would blow joy and life back in, like someone performing an emotional version of CPR. Now that I have grown up to become a comedian, he's left me with one final important life lesson in the tragic ta taking of his own life. If you choose the noble profession that this man did, if you choose to blow life and joy into people, you must always remember to stop. 
before you run out of breath. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> everybody. Yeah, so our second Edinburgh was uh, was 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 great, really. I think. Yeah. Um, to me now, having done the last season, this third Edinburgh, like when I was doing two shows and it was more adult uh, an experience, and I was more sensible. That that kind of second one almost is like the that's the like the classic one. Yeah. When we were sort of like still having a lot more like a lot of fun, a lot of kind of things were going down. Um, but we were also making a great show. Yeah. And, you know, we found, as you said earlier, a groove. A groove. So this next one is from season three, where we all grew up. We stopped sort of being a family dynamic and we started being basically, I think by the end of Edinburgh, the dynamic that we decided was kind of Star Trek. <laughs> um, yeah, with uh, with me unfortunately being Kirk. Um, <laughs> I can't deny it. I just wish it wasn't the case. Um there's a few different ways I can be shown to be like Kirk, and so it, it, it must be the case. But what really matters is that I'm Bones. Yeah. Yeah, that's all that actually that's matters. all you really that's care. The whole reason about. this metaphor exists is so that you can be Bones or, uh, yeah, McCoy, as some people might not know Bones is the nickname, because people are uneducated well, about learn. Star Trek. Well, learn. Go watch some Star Trek. And Harv being Spock. Yeah. Yeah, which Harv's the tech guy behind sort of everything that you hear on on, on the show, generally speaking, although mm. not this bit. I'm recording that. That's why it's probably not as good. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, Harv's like Spock in many ways as well, I think. It's not immediately apparent. It's not as obvious. Yeah. But I think, you I know, think ultimately, you... my heart is with, uh, if, with Harv the same way it is with Spock. Yeah. And, and, you know, I like Bones too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, burn. Um, so you're right. This was much more grown-up and well, we were trying to be more grown-up, more more thoughtful in the way that we were dealing with it. And um, Dave was, of course, doing another show. Harv yeah. was doing another show because Harv was always managing to tech more and do more than doing the tech again I, I for the entire free fringe. I don't know how he's physically get. I'm hardly able to do one show, guys, and Harv is doing the that and Dave's doing an incredibly beautiful, very, very emotionally difficult one-man show. Yeah. And then we do stand-up tragedy at night. So it was a much more grown-up uh, season, and I think that reflects in the performances of which we we were going to be selective about the podcast, but we didn't in the end because the quality was outstanding. Yeah, we put out everything. It Everything's was just there. So good. So good. So it was... Really difficult to pick on this, but there was one performance that I connected with the most, and it was partially based on the experience that I was having, but also it's a person that over the years I have just come to really love and love what he does, and he's just such an amazing human and educator and poet, and that is Lee Nelson. I put your hands together for Lee Nelson! Dave told me to write about tragedy, so that's what I've done. Um, the tragedy of history and the tragedy of legacy, learning, old and new. Move no stones, build no cans, the past's not yours, the future's theirs. You don't create, you just curate, pass on as taught, serve, stand and wait. On the Burren in Western Ireland, they have these signs saying, move no stones, build no cans, which is a poetry of its own, but which otherwise is entirely dismal. 
The intention, of course, is to preserve the natural landscape, but the landscape isn't natural. The burren is covered in evidence of humans piling the stones, setting them upright, building elegant dolmens, leaving their natural mark on the landscape for other humans to see, now and in the future. Move no stones, build no cairns, the past not yours, the future's theirs, you don't partake, you just spectate, you're here to serve, wait at the gate. Seems to me it's a human instinct to mark your environment, to leave a trace, mark your passage through the place, from cave paintings to graffiti, from Avebury to the Parthenon to the Gherkin. I was here, you feel the need to say. To let those to come know what, the, what, what you were building for them, to let those around you know you were there, to naturally mark your naturally awarded by birthplace as a natural being in the natural world. Move no stones, build no cairns, the past's not yours, the future's theirs. You'll not create, they'll adjudicate, sit down, shut up, just serve and wait. But making history has stopped, it seems. People no longer make a mark, you just respect the marks others make. You don't make history, you watch it. Look at it passively and smile complicitly. You don't participate actively. We have no agency and we are told we should gaze admiringly at all that heritage. But we don't make any, apparently, and we mustn't make... What's there look untidy with our insignificance. Move no stones, build no cairns, the past's not yours, the future's theirs. You don't create, you just curate, pass on as taught, serve, stand and wait. So you can grow debt but leave no legacy. So you can watch the repeats but make no telly of your own. So you can owe the past but not pay the future. So you can venerate but not generate culture. So you can buy the t-shirt but not go see or do yourself. So you can charge towards a foregone cliff and leave nothing of worth but wealth. I say move those stones, build your cairns, shape your tools, bear your bands, shape your cares, take those dares, split those hairs, raise concerns, arm no bears, reap no tears. Please move those stones, build those cairns, show those to come the way we work because we create. Yes, we create. We'll show them yet, you fucking wait. That's about making history, uh, and this is about teaching it, which I don't do. Uh, though I did, I, I did, I did, I did tell my uh, school careers officer that that's what I was going to be. So I got really fucking boring work experience. Um, <laughs> that made me wear my school uniform. Um, everybody else got two weeks off. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, a t-shirt, I fix photocopiers. <laughs> no, not me. Um, this one's uh, for Michael Gove. He's a lovely chap. And now for Nicky Morgan who's also wonderful. <laughs> this examines the... Uh, oh, it's got, it's got a C word in it, and I feel I should uh, explain the use of the C word in this one if I've just about got time. Um, strong C word. I might not say the C word when I get to it, but the point is this. If you take the percussive, penetrative power of the masculine, cock and dick, and you attribute it to the feminine, it becomes that much more transgressive and that much more powerful, and that's why it's the most offensive of the swear words, because it breaks more rules. It's actually feminist to say the word cunt. <laughs> it is, lots of people have said it. Jermaine Greer, chiefly. Um, and Jacques Lacan, as a reading of Freud, and, uh, yeah, and the French feminists of the 70s, for those of you who are into that shit. <laughs> it's wild stuff. This one's called The Burdens of Power, which examines history through the medium of elves. The king of the elves strode swift to his throne. The rebellion quelled, the domain still his own. There he stood on the dais, his regime to enforce with what he'd learnt on a management training course. <laughs> Fellow elves, 
He smiled and held up a hand. The room was still stately, its appointment so grand, all the pomp of the elvish in this throne room ingrained. But the consultant said that the common touch must be maintained. Fellow elves was intended to level the field. Outside steamed the corpses where insurgents had yielded their cause to the forces the monarch had hired. Dwarf mercenaries from the kingdom of Dwanak Ufayad. <laughs> Traditionally, elves fought with the stems of fresh roses. Combatants would strike swift gladiatorial poses, their poise and their battle cries, judged by king's quorum. And the one who did it nicest declared victor ludorum. <laughs> but this latest rebellion over paying conditions had halted production of soft pink kitten mittens, and the king's daily quail egg depended on mittens exported, so dwarves they were summoned and rebels were slaughtered. <laughs> Capitalism. Ah, so now was the time to restore status quo so the looms could start weaving, the mittens could flow, so the king took the dais, the damage to limit through the proud use of rhetoric, language with nothing in it. <laughs> Fellow elves. It was an opener to establish credentials. The king had learnt this on a long residential, all found from tax money, free beer and free maidens, a free for all for pragmatism and free word association. Fellow elves. Here I stand on this darkest of days. Yes, I summoned the wars, but they'll soon go away. I'm afraid at the time they were just necessary. The burdens of power are onerous and heavy. Now, there's elves here amongst us. Wreckers, I call them, say that I and my wife, members of my quorum, sit here growing fat on the sails of these mittens, made, as you know, from the guts of your children. But as was proved conclusively, I ask for no quarter by the great elvish scientist Nils Overwater. There's just not enough pixie dust to go round, so your children are better off under the ground. So your kids have to die. I've got two of my own. But it's counterproductive to cry and to moan and to ululate, holler, howl, keen scream, be morose. If your kids have to die, let them be of some use. You see, these mittens we make, see, they're known across the world. None softer, none finer, gut fleece, softly curled. They're our glory, elves' glory. Fellow elves, don't be churlish. The best footwear for young cats is defiantly elvish. And so, do you want that your kids died in vain? I mean, these complainers will say that they won't come again, that their life is a life once it's gone, lost forever. But you're young and you're vigorous. Go make another and so that your lives and the lives of your children do not go to waste. We must still export mittens. The dwarves are our friends. To keep order, they'll stay here. As he pauses, breath held, there arises a cheer. And it's in this way the cunts who would sell education ensure passive compliance from the knowledge-starved nation, ensure the lessons of history go unlearnt, so repeated, thanks to doublespeak, lies and cant, rhetoric reheated. We'll watch history repeat, thanks to lessons unlearnt, as the killing fields swell and the corpses are burnt. And that was Lee Nelson, who is a man I think should make his own podcast, because he's got so much knowledge in his head, and I just want to hear it all. And that comes to the end, really, of yeah. the tragedy being pretty much nearly over. I mean, people should remember that they should that tragic autumn is coming up at the Hackney Attic on the sixteenth of October, and that's three acts. Uh, the first one being Tragic Changes, which has got Ben Target and Adam Blumpier, I'm going to say. Well, I don't, I've got to learn how to say his second name. He's from the Beta Males. Um, those are people that you might know. Um, but, but but everybody in that act is amazing. 
Um, and then we've got Liz's act, which is tragic schooling. Tragic and then schooling. we're ending 2015 with an act of tragic fool. That is going to have the comedian James Harris. It's going to have the comedian uh, Yorick Moll, and it's got Bridie Lee Kennedy, uh, who is an amazing storyteller. It's a bit male heavy, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't have that many men on stage if I can help it, especially not white men. There's quite a lot of white men uh, on the stage. Your act, <laughs> you don't worry about it, it out. Um, but I like to think of it. If it is too white men heavy, I like to think that's because it's tragic autumn and, and white men like the leaves of autumn trees need to fall. So yeah. I mean, so on that note, remember to come to that show if you can. There's another show that Stand Up Tragedy is putting on, which is my solo show that Liz mentioned earlier on, which is What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. I'm doing that as a double bill with AJ McKenna, who did a couple of our Edinburgh shows and uh, has an amazing show, which she'll be doing with me, Howl of the Banty, which really deserves to be seen by more people. And that is happening on the 19th of November at the Dog Star in Brixton. Um, so yeah come along to that that's pay what you like it starts at 7.30 that's when the doors open the Hackney Attic is £5 in advance £7 on the door Uh, tickets are available already Um, so yeah Liz have you got any final thoughts to to make Uh, I think that's it except I'm looking forward to what Dave and the team do with Stand the Tragedy for a future season Um, watch out for whatever comes in London or Edinburgh or anywhere else in the country. And I think these are my favourites of these seasons, but please go back and listen because they've all had a very different vibe and there have been some amazing performers you can watch just grow and develop and change. And now the tragedy is over. has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionary.